Welcome back to Venture Studio. I'm your producer, Kevin Weeks. In this week's episode, you'll hear part one of an amazing two-part interview with John Frankel, the founder of FF Venture Capital. Dave and John discuss how FF approaches investing, what functions FF provides to its portfolio companies and why they do it, the label on the back of the honey bottle, and what it means to be living in a world of abundance. If you're a fan of Venture Studio, you can find more episodes, including Dave's classic interview with John Frankel from 2011, at VentureStudio.org or SoundCloud.com slash Venture-Studio. Subscribe on iTunes and never miss an interview. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Venture Studio. John Frankel is the founding partner of FF Venture Capital and has been an early stage investor since 1999. John has served as a director on over 35 company boards and as an investor in more than 76 companies, including Cornerstone On Demand, Indiegogo, Iconic Security, Clout, Skycatch, Plated, 500px, Distill Networks, and Bottlenose. And now, without further ado, Let's head on up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and John Frankel. In the office, baby. John, it's great to have you back. Great to be talking with you. Thank you so much. Uh, let's take stock. In just a few years' time, six or seven years... FF has really become an early stage institution in New York City now. I know you're on your fourth fund. You're just launching it. Uh, you're in maybe close to 70 companies by my count, maybe more. Talk about the progression, really, from blue to silver to rose and sapphire and the fund size, if you don't mind. Just share, share a little insight with us how that's gone. Will do. Well, for your listeners, you know, we use colors for our funds uh, and our fourth fund, um, is Sapphire. We've been investing out of it uh, for a while. Uh, we actually have about 14 companies now in it. We're very focused on early stage investing, uh, investing from sort of a million dollar pre's to $50 million pre's. And that's the focus of the fund. And we feel that, you know, most firms that are seven years old are sort of five players. There's a couple of partners, there's uh, support and the like. And when you've got 60-plus you know, active portfolio companies, it's very tough to give them the time of day when you're raising capital, you're visible in the marketplace, maybe you're blogging, maybe you're talking, maybe you're doing podcasts. Right. Mm. And when you're scouting, looking you know, at two to 3,000 companies a year. And at the same time, it's very tough to be engaged in 60, 70 businesses actively. Right. So the image I try to think about is, you know, how do you build unfair advantage if you're playing five-a-side football? Well, we bring a team of 27-plus people. Yeah. And that, that enables us to be engaged. It enables us to help our companies if they stumble. It enables us to help our companies if they accelerate. And we bring a lot of resources to bear to do that. And I think that uh, really is a significant part of our reputation, our willingness as partners, and our five partners, to invest a couple million dollars a year into the infrastructure to support our portfolio companies. Yeah. It's, as, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, this is very unique for a smaller, I know you don't like the term, but we don't have a better one, micro VC approach uh, to have an acceleration 
team of this kind of size and a platform? I mean, it, it seems to grow every year. I don't know how you do it. What, what does it involve? It involves planning. You know, we're a startup. Right. So we, we have plans like anyone else. And so we think about how do we disrupt venture capital? How do we approach it orthogonally? And how do we have a lower failure rate and a higher success rate? And how do we allocate capital to do that? And that, that you know, it's, at some level, it's, it's very, very simple. And we're willing to give up, you know, sort of fat partner salaries in years, you know, one to seven on the belief that in years, you know, 10 to 20, uh, it's going to pay dividends through higher returns. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's a simple model. We're meant to be long-term investors as venture capitalists. And so we're making long-term investment in our business. And, you know, as we've raised our fourth fund, we spent a lot more time with institutional investors, and they've really liked what we're doing. What's unusual for a fund our size is their engagement. Normally, they like to engage with you know, larger funds to be able to cut larger checks. But I think fundamentally, we just bring a great team to the table. And you know, I look at the intellectual capital, the skill base, the thoughtfulness of my partners and the team, and um, I'm very pleased with uh, the team we're building. Yeah. The acceleration aspects involve what? Accounting, finance, PR. What, what, what are the suite of services you bring to bear on your portfolio companies? Well, I mean, we help with PR and recruiting and fundraising, community management and the like. One of the things that's a little unusual is you know, nine people on our team, six of which are CPAs, provide accounting support. And we provide, we provide that at cost, and we provide on a fractional basis. And so someone comes along, and they can use a tenth of a controller, and then a quarter and a half. And by the time they're using a full controller, you know, they usually fire us and hire their own team. Sometimes they supplement the team with us. Um, but what intrigues us, and, th- and this is a cost recovery basis. So we charge costs. It's not a conflict. Uh, between the management company and the um, LPs, and they don't have to use us. But here's something interesting we've noticed. About half our companies do use us. Hmm. And the chance of having an accounting problem, A, I can't make payroll on Friday because I didn't understand the difference between billings and cash, is about zero. Right. But the rest... And but, we've seen but, some high-profile instances of that lately in, in the media, at least. In some of the well, we, ha- we have. And when we've spoken to VCs in general across the stack, they say somewhere between 10 to 20% of their portfolio companies at some point in their life have, you know, quote-unquote, accounting problems. Right. And because it's like background radiation, mm-hmm. right? If, if it's just there, you think it's normal. And yet, in half our portfolio, it doesn't happen at all. So that makes us think that you know this is a significant de-risking tool. Right. And though you know it's cost recovery, so you know we don't make any money on it. We, we as investors and our LPs and our founders make a lot of it because they avoid those problems. I would imagine that with some of these companies, it's a way to formalize, templatize, get a process in place with professionals and 
uh, that must be comforting for them and they can stick with it over time or eventually you hire their own people. But in the beginning, uh, it's maybe a skill that a lot of founders don't necessarily have in-house. It's not just that it's a skill that they don't have. We've not come across an entrepreneur who's founding a company coming to us to capital who's a CPA. Right. And that doesn't mean tomorrow there won't be, right. but it's a rare event. And I don't know if you've come across many CPA entrepreneurs. Never. But usually they're not complementary skill sets. Right. Yet, knowing your numbers, knowing your book, Understanding the difference between bookings, billing, gap, and cash, knowing how to model your business financially so you don't get into trouble, it feels like it's basics. Right. And then there are some founders who like to keep things close and do it on QuickBooks, but you know it's not where we spend their intellectual cycles. So we, we found it helpful, I think, um, uh, CEOs have found it helpful, and it's it's something that I think all VCs should do. And I, it really, I really don't understand why they don't, particularly at the early stage. Once once you start getting to Series B and Series C, there should be an internal accounting organization. But when you're four people in a room, and you're you know you have domain expertise in cybersecurity or drones. Mm-hmm. To have domain expertise in maintaining your books really shouldn't, shouldn't be a prerequisite. So we, what we try to do as a firm is bring the business level help from strategy through recruiting, PR, accounting, financial planning, uh, projections, analysis. Um, and that, we think, really can help our portfolio companies substantially. Speaking of the portfolio, I... I know we're in a few companies together, Contently, 500 Pixels, Unikey, I see, but you're in also uh, a lot of these great companies, Livefire, Indiegogo, Skycatch, uh, Yieldmo, Plated. I've seen a lot of press lately on that company, Owlet, as well. Give us, give us a few tidbits on uh, any, any of these companies. Let's talk a little bit about Owlet. Owlet has this little baby sock. It's a sock you put on a baby, and... It, you know, what's it do? It tries to prevent the baby from dying. Yep. So pretty, pretty good thing. Uh, How does it do it? Well, it measures movement and blood oxygen level and, and heartbeat uh, and body temperature. And usually those things start to sort of, you know, move in the wrong direction. If the baby's starting to suffocate or there's allergic reaction or there's some other dynamic going on. And there's some just, I mean, just amazing stories on the side of parents who have written in and said, were it not for this, I would have lost my son. I would have lost my daughter. And, you know, it's, it's an amazing story. You know, it's kind of interesting. You know, my, my youngest is now 20. Right. You know, when I grew up, there weren't seatbelts. And when our kids grew up, we started with the... You know, you're having to have um, car seats for kids. Now you can't leave the hospital without the, you having a car seat. Oh, yeah. You're a kid. You just can't. It's like, yeah. that's ridiculous. Right. And, you know, you know this with young kids. Yep. I think there'll be a day. And I think it'll be, you know, maybe five years, seven years from now, where you will not be allowed to leave hospital without 
a movement, temperature, pulse, blood oxygen, without an outlet sock, or a competitor to that. I think it will be considered to be bad parenting if you're not monitoring your child in that first year. And, you know, there's three to 5,000 babies that die each year in, you know, cot deaths from various things. It was interesting, you know, my, um, my daughter-in-law pointed out to me, I never knew this, on the back of honey, there's a little warning label that says, don't give honey to babies under the age of one. And I never knew that. Apparently, it's, you know, cause of allergic reaction, bacterial infection, death. We never knew that when we were growing up. And so knowledge is just sort of getting broader. If you didn't know that, go and have a look at the little honey bottle you have in your larder. See if it has that label there. It blew me away when I saw that. So I think we're just in a world where we're knowing more and more. Owlet is a great company addressing this problem. Fantastic. I remember those guys when they started out. I, I think they're from Utah, and they were in the uh, RGA Techstars program, and young parents themselves, and just so committed to this. It, it was a fantastic group. Fantastic group. We met them through RGA. We have, I think, um, I want to say five Techstars companies. Uh, we like accelerators generally. We tend not to go to demo days. This one, uh, I think we met them before, and um, right. I gave them a term sheet before demo day, if my memory is correct. But they did great in the demo and subsequently um, uh, great lead. I can't remember if the round's public or not, but the great West Coast firm is leading the round. People we know very well. Uh, we're excited to see where this company can go. Wonderful. You said some things before that, that make me want to ask you, you know, what is informing a lot of your philosophy and approach nowadays? What are you seeing in the world that is affecting your lens as you look at these these companies and meet these entrepreneurs so we, this is a two-hour podcast right okay. so there should be enough time to cover <laughs> we're gonna have you back don't worry <laughs> yeah. um so I, I you know i'm not there's lots of stuff we talk about uh, we talk about how we're in a zero growth world we talk about how we're going through something like the industrial revolution but i think something you know worth digging in a little further here is we're in a world of abundance Education used to be scarce. It's kind of abundant. Mm-hmm. Um, access to knowledge, abundant. Access to entertainment used to be scarce. Now it's abundant. Right. And you know, so the question comes, what is scarce in this world where so many things are becoming abundant? And I, you know, I think it comes down to three things. It comes down to location. And if um, I wanted to be cute here, I'd say location, location, location. Mm -hmm. But it comes down to location, intellectual capital, and human attention. So location is why properties in certain places are, you know, extortionally expensive. In other places, just ridiculously cheap. Uh, Intellectual capital, I think people will continue to be willing to pay up for the best ideas, the smartest people in their given field. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, both of those are sort of 1% kind of supporting drivers. Right. Human attention is fascinating. Um, you know, I think 
you know, we always get informed by our particular journey. And I was at Goldman 21 years, the last 11 years on the sales and trading floor. A trading floor environment is a peculiar environment. You know, in the mid-90s, not many people really, you know, could do it. Mm. What I mean by that is sit and look at six screens, listen to the broadcast system over the top called the hoot and holler, be on the phone, um, talk to someone, shout over to one of their colleagues right. in this sort of cramped space. Right. You know, that notion of multitasking was very rare and it took a lot of energy to learn. And today, I think everybody multitasks. I don't know anyone who watches television who doesn't then pick up their phone and check out Twitter or Facebook or do something different at the same time. And so it's very tough to fractionate human attention. If you can capture a lot of it, you can be the next Snapchat. Right. You can be the next Facebook. Because that's what they're capturing. They're capturing engagement. They're capturing growth in users. They're capturing retention. It's all about... Um, human attention. But what I think it's resulting in are people just getting overstimulated. And that's not good. When I look at, you know, folks that I know who work at hedge funds, by their early 40s, they tend to get burnt out. They don't want to be so focused on so much stuff all day, and people refer to it as staring at a screen all day, but it's having to really have so much pressure. Oh, yeah, harnessing all those inputs, yeah. And, you know, when you talk to people who have Apple Watches, you know, I saw some statistics, they look at their watch, I can't remember the number, 80-plus times a day, 120 times a day. And all of that is garnering people's attention, and... You know, what we used to find is people would burn out. And I'm concerned that at a society level, it's exhausting people. And the thing is, it's a limited resource. So you go from, you get 10 emails a day to 200 emails a day to 300. And you start, you respond to people in shorter and shorter sentences and maybe you have a little email add-in that cuts and pastes out standard responses for people. Yes. But, you know, and I pushed this out on Twitter. I said, you know, maybe the new VC no is just not responding. Because mm. if you're getting 30 inquiries a day and you're in 10 meetings and you're trying to have you know, lunch, breakfast, and dinner and a family life, how many hours can you devote to email? Yeah, we're in a world where inbox zero becomes less aspirational because your attention's drawn in other places. Um, right. It, it it could augur a, a very bad condition to yeah, and, to have and, inbox zero as a goal. Right. And and but I think it applies to the housewife. I think it applies to children. I think it applies mm-hmm. everywhere. This overstimulation. It, it reprograms our brain. It programs our brain how we work. And then people start doing things say, you know what? I need to start shutting things out. And I think that's one of the reasons why ad-blocking software is growing dramatically. Because people are saying, you can't have my attention for free. I'm going to block that. Right. Because I don't want to look at that page. 
If you use Safari, there's this little reader view that is a great view. It gets rid of everything other than the core text within it. I'm sure Chrome and Firefox and Internet Explorer have similar perspectives, similar capabilities. Well, maybe not Chrome. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they don't want to block out the ad. Right, right. But, you know, there's this, there's this sort of arms race between advertisers who want to grab your attention and you who want to keep your mind free. And so I think meditation, personal self-development, I think these kinds of skill sets will have to grow as part of the defense against this constant attack. And the people I know who sort of keep the Sabbath and put down all their electronics for a day, etc., like it for a reason that was never in the Bible. (laughs) Because they can actually interface one-on-one with other organic beings. Beings. <laughs> I.e., they can talk to people right. without the distraction, without that sort of trigger finger to go and grab for the phone to see what's happening on Facebook or text or Snapchat or the like. What fascinates me is all the drivers we see here are just accelerating. And so the world we're going to be in in 10 years is going to be as different as the world was 10 years ago. And so what was the world 10 years ago? No Netflix, no Facebook, no iPhone, right. no iPad, no iPencil, hmm. right? You know, no um, Snapchat. You go through things that people spend probably 30% of their time on today didn't exist 10 years ago. So what are the things 10 years from now we're going to be spending 30% of our time on? And... If it's the same things, if it's still Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, if they, if they retain their supremacy mm. through consolidation, through um, buying out competitors and yes. shutting them down or incorporating them or adding them as new channels, then we end up in a very interesting world. We end up in a world that, you know, one of my friends described, he goes, what if there's only four trillion dollar companies in the world and every other company is just worth not that much right what if all the value you know goes to these tech conglomerates right that are being built google alphabet clearly is a sign of wanting to be a tech conglomerate but even facebook and apple in its own way yes uh, and Amazon in its own way are going that route. And so maybe we end up with a fair number of really, really large companies that use their currencies to buy out anything threatening whilst they are increasingly disrupting everyone around them. And if you look at you know, Google, you can say, well, Google's you know, main income is from ads. Right. But if you actually look at the businesses they're disrupting, they're, bu- they're disrupting businesses all across the board. Um, and I think, it, I think it's only going to be added. Same with Amazon. Amazon's disrupting businesses all across the board. Right. And I think that's the world we live in. And I think it's a fascinating world. Wow, what an interview. We will be taking this to a second part. Make sure you tune in next week to hear part two of this amazing interview with John Frankel. Frankel.